0: This is the final week in our series, A Counterculture Church, and we've been looking at one thing specifically that makes us counterculture, and that is church discipline. Living in the light of the truth that we just sang about, that sin is broken uh, by Christ. So how do we now deal with sin not only personally, but how do we deal with sin that's unrepentant and blatant and ongoing in the midst of the church? That's the essence of this four-week series. It's no doubt something that makes us distinctive. So just remember, here's the definition we're giving to church discipline. It's drawn from this chapter. It's a humbly restorative action by which a church removes a an unrepentant member from the benefits of the fellowship so that the church displays distinction, pursues purity, provides protection with the hope of lovingly drawing the sinning person to return in repentance. That's the definition that we're drawing from this chapter. And today we're looking at the last paragraph. We've taken a paragraph each week. It's taken us four weeks. Here we are now in the final paragraph of this chapter, verses 9 through 13, and I want to say to you up front that I think this is the most practical of the paragraphs. I didn't say it's the most important, all right? But it is the most practical in that we will finally get some, um, you can call the nuts and bolts for how church discipline actually looks in a church. Here's kind of the pictures in my mind. I, I think today you're going to kind of uh, get a chance, so to speak, to sit behind the wheel, maybe put the keys in ignition. How, what would it look like if you had to drive this car? You know, when you were 16 and you finally got your set of keys to the car, you'd watch your parents drive. You saw how they did it. you learned from them. But then when you actually got behind it, you had to put all that into practice. That's kind of what this is. Now, I'm not saying there's a big announcement coming today. I don't want to say that. I'm not trying to be funny here. I'm not, this is not a setup for a surprise or anything like that. I have nothing to announce in regards to church discipline, thankfully. I'm saying that if we, this were necessary at some point, we will know how to put this into practice appropriately and biblically and distinctively. So it's the most practical chapter uh, paragraph in this chapter. So what do you say that we uh, see what God would say to us in these verses? Let's read this final paragraph together. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll begin in verse 9. I'll make a few comments along the way. We'll come back, look at two nuggets from these verses. Then take some questions, so if you have some, have your phone handy. Feel free to ask, and we'll try to find some time to address those today. And then uh, we'll close with one final song and communion as well. Here's what verse 9 would say to us. I wrote to you in my letter. So there's apparently a former letter that Paul had written to the Corinthian church. Some think it may have been one that was um, we don't have in the canon. Others think it may have been... This may be a reference to other parts of 1st or 2nd Corinthians. That's up for grabs. The Lord knows. But Paul here is saying that he wrote in a previous letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And this seems to be the gist of his command and perhaps even the whole of it. Just don't associate with sexually immoral people. And perhaps they misunderstood that because he, he now brings greater clarity. He's saying, here's what I didn't mean. I didn't mean... To not associate with the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. I'm not sure if Paul's intending to be comical, but that's pretty funny. He says, if you want to associate with, if you if you don't want to associate with people who are sinning, but they're part of the world, that's what they are, that's what they do, then you have to go out of the world. Like that's just what the world's made up of. It's made up of sinners. But his point is, I'm not speaking to the world, I'm speaking to the church. That's what he says next. He says, I am now writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. So he brings more clarity to his first uh, instruction, right? He says, I'm writing to you not to associate with those who bear the name of brother if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. So it appears that he formerly had just said, don't associate with sexual immoral people. Now he said, oh, let me just clarify that. Don't associate with them if they claim to be a Christian and they're involved repetitively, unrepentantly in these sins. He says not even to eat with such a one. And then verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Notice the word outsiders in verse 12. You ought to draw a line Back to verse 10, where he says you would need to go out of the world. So he's drawn a a, a correlation here. Going out of the world. These are the outsiders. It's not his job to judge those people. Now, make no mistake, they will be judged. You'll see this in verse 13. God judges those on the outside. So three times he references the outsiders. But he says for the church in his role, it's not to judge those on the outside. It's those inside the church whom you are to judge. So let's just clear something up here at a face value reading of scripture. The church is to judge its members. So it is actually non-theological and unbiblical and completely scripturally inaccurate to say, hey, don't judge anybody. Have you ever heard that? Raise your hand. You've heard that from hosts of people. You shouldn't judge anybody. A better rendition of that is, it's not the Christians job to judge the world, but it is the church's job to judge its members. Now you can argue with that and talk to God about it. You can, uh, you know, be upset about it. I'm just reading to you plain common sense scripture. Paul says, is it not those inside the church whom you are to discern, to judge, to hold accountable? You find several words in this chapter that would be the same type of word. Such as he said in verse 3, pronouncing judgment. So so I think this is one of the things that makes us counterculture. Is the courage to stand up to people who say, hey, hey, Christians shouldn't judge. (laughs) That's just an inaccurate, incomplete understanding of the Bible. There is a responsibility among Christians to actually discern and hold accountable what's going on in each other's life as members of Christ's body. In fact, Paul would even go one step further and say, God judges those outside. Look at the end of the chapter. Purge the evil person from you. So as you're discerning, then those who refuse to repent and who continue in in unrepentant, blatant sin, we're to remove them. The word purge there is the same idea as the word removed in verse 2. It's the same idea as the word deliver in verse 5. It's the same idea as the word cleanse. Uh, What's that in verse uh, 6 and 7? So Paul here is making it very clear. There is a a pattern and a way to go about dealing with sin in your midst. He's laid the groundwork. He's given the reasoning. He's told them what their response should be. Now he gives them two things, a rubric for it and a requirement of it. He's going to give them a rubric. How do you now go about this? Who's really in the crosshairs? and what is actually required to exercise church discipline. Let's talk about those two things, the rubric of, and the requirement for, okay? First of all, let's look at the rubric he discusses here. I call this the rubric of who, because I think what he does here is he, he kind of eliminates anyone who should not be part of this action, as we call it. Now, a rubric, let's understand what a rubric is. Most of you will know, but in case you don't, a rubric is just like a a sorting criteria. If you've been in school, you often get a rubric, meaning that's how the teacher's going to grade you. I'm seeing teachers here, they're nodding. You have this especially in writing assignments. They'll give you a grid. It will tell you kind of what's expected and you'll be graded based on how well you do according to those standards. Paul here is giving us a rubric, a sorting criteria, a filter, so to speak, to help us understand who is actually in the crosshairs of church discipline. He says here, it is not the world, but the church. That's a simple version. And within the church, I think there are two things he says. It's someone who's a member of Christ's church, that's their label, but someone whose life is not exemplifying um, those actions. Let me show you where this is found. The label and the life, I think, really are seen beginning with the word but in verse 11. This is where the rubric begins to take shape. It's the contrasting word in verse 11, the word but. Notice what he says here. He says, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone, and here's the first, who bears the name of brother. So there's a label put forth. I'm part of this body. I'm part of Christ's church. I'm a Christian. I follow Jesus as your label. You're claiming this. But then he says, if they're guilty of sexual immorality, and then he lists a number of sample sins here. I'll explain why I think they're sample sins in a moment. So he's he's drawing a, a, um, I'll say, I'll use the word comparison or perhaps a a, um, picture between two things. What someone says, and then this same person is guilty of these sins. Now, both of these are in the present tense, all right? Someone is claiming this, and yet someone is living like this. You see that in the sense of the word uh, is mentioned twice here. Someone who bears the name of brother, he is bearing this name, he's claiming, and then they're also guilty of these sins. Now, in all transparency, I want to tell you something. The word guilty is actually not in the original manuscripts. It's a good supply of a word here. it's what, it, that's what he's saying. But I think the force of the original structure, uh, let me try to explain it to you. I think it's very important. Paul is using a present tense verb of be here. He says, here's your label. You're saying you're a brother and yet you're being. And then these nouns, uh, adulterer, idolater, uh, reviler, they're all nominative case. So he's actually putting forth two things. Here, here's this subject and here's this subject, so to speak. And with a present tense verb, often in the Greek language, and I'm getting a little deep here for you, but I think it'll help you. Follow me. Often they would use a thing called a particle. And a particle is used with a present tense verb when they're trying to show there's a mismatch. So Paul here grammatically and structurally says, yeah, if anyone says, hey, I'm a brother or a sister I'm in God's family. I'm a part of God's kingdom. I follow Jesus. That's his current claim. And yet he or she is currently living in an unrepentant, sinful lifestyle as an idolater, as an adulterer, as a thief, as a robber, as a worshiper of false gods. That's the person that needs discipline because there's a mismatch of names. So that's the person that is under church discipline. And here's what I like about that. He's not saying that it's the person who sinned past tense, is he? He's saying it's the person who tries to hypocritically claim two titles. It's the person who's trying to walk in two worlds. Who in the present tense is trying to say, I belong to Christ's church. Oh, but I'm also wanting to have multiple sexual partners. I'm also wanting to worship multiple gods. Or I want to just covet and be greedy, never share and never give. I want to always be one who's just fighting and I want to be an abusive person. That's what reviler means. So, So when there's a mismatch and after loving appeals... And after a long-suffering approach, if there is never a repentance, there's never a a return from like, hey, this is wrong, I want to live like God asked me to live, there's never this return, this repentance, then we remove them from, from the body. That's just all Paul's saying. When there is a mismatch between a life and a label, when there's ongoing blatant sin, that's who really then we approach with the biblical process and the biblical action of church discipline. I would say it's like this. Church discipline is for the one whose names don't match. Now, Peter echoed this very thing in his first epistle, chapter four, verse 17, when he said this, judgment begins in the house of God. And so I just want to encourage you, as you're thinking about, okay, who, who is under church discipline? and how does that occur, and when does that start? It, it doesn't start by finding someone out in the world who's just blatantly sinning. Welcome to the world, right? <laughs> and to be extremely bold with you, that's not even our job to judge them. That's God's job. But he's assigned us the job to discern and hold each other accountable. And so when someone is in long-term blatant, commonly known, unrepentant sin. And there's been no desire to, re- to return from that, repent of that, even though they're claiming to be a Christian and, f- and part of a body as a member. And that's the person that we begin to say, hey, there, there's, we, we, we want to help these labels match. We want to bring consistency and balance. We want this to be an equal equ- uh, an equation that works. And so we approach them, and that's how that's, that's who can be disciplined it's not just anyone who sins. it's not that you've done something bad in your past. it's not that we all have sin, right? It's the person who has a blatant, obvious, long-term mismatch between their life and their label. Is that making sense? That's very practical, I hope. It's very sensible. I, I get that. So that's the rubric that he gives us. It's not the world it's the church, and within the church, it's those. It's someone whose life and label just doesn't match over a long period of time. He says the church should deal with that. Now, how do we deal with that? This so what he does next, he gives us the requirement of church discipline. In other words, what is the baseline for what we're to do? I think that the best way to say it is this. It's the removal of official fellowship, but not informal friendliness. So if you're taking notes, just kind of jot this down. Church discipline is the removal of official fellowship, not informal friendliness. I draw this from four words in the text. And again, we're going to keep our nose in the book and let it guide us and steer us. It's the word associate, mentioned twice, verse 9 and verse 11. It's the phrase not to eat in verse 11. It's the phrase whom you are to judge, that's also verse 12. And then the word word purge in verse 13. All of these words indicate to us an official kind of judicial action, right? And I think the the action is really two-sided or two-folded. It means, first of all, removing the person from their identification as a member. You see this in the chapter. He says, remove the person from among you, verse 2. He says, purge this person from among you, verse uh, 13. So there's a sense in which you remove their identification as a member, but then you refuse their participation in communion. I think that's the point of the phrase, not to even eat with someone. In this culture and in this time, the Lord's Supper was an actual meal. It was called the love feast. Um, obviously, it was uh, derived from the Passover, and so it developed in that fashion. The church celebrated this with a whole meal. I think Paul here is referencing the Lord's Supper, and so what I think is happening is this. Paul is saying to the person who blatantly, in a long-term fashion, and it's commonly known that they're just not going to live like who they say they are. Then remove them as a member and refuse to allow them communion. And you say, why communion? It's a good question. Here's the answer. It's because no other action in the church corporally symbolizes unity like communion. I would say to you and argue with you, debate you on this, it's singularly the greatest thing we do to mark our oneness in Christ. You see, in, I told you this before, baptism is, is a one person into many. But in communion, it's many into one. And every week when you take the cup and, and the bread... You're saying, with everyone taking that, I'm one with you in Christ. And you're putting aside personalities and preferences. You're putting aside division. Um, All those things that kind of make us individually unique, you're putting all that aside. You're saying, man, we will come together in Christ. And on the basis of what Christ did, we will be unified it's the singular greatest thing we can do as a church to symbolize our unity and who our unity is in. And so Paul is saying, if you've got someone whose, labels, whose label in life doesn't match, and they're saying in one hand, yeah, I'm in. But man, I'm living like the devil. And this is just ongoing and blatant. He says, don't allow that person to eat in that way, because it signifies association and a depth of relationship and a depth of unity that they are not owning. Now, that's what I believe this passage teaches. That church, this one, is as a as at a baseline. It's a removal of membership and refusal of communion, because these are the official ways the church is able to say, "Okay, uh, you're not acknowledging." this ongoing, unblatant repentance in. So we're going to create a a, a distance between us, one that actually exists, but you're just not acknowledging. So we're going to actually create that distance. I call it the discipline of distance. It's not the discipline of politeness. Every member, every attender here today, listen to my heart and hear my voice. It's not the discipline of being non-courteous, It's the discipline of official and appropriate distance in things like membership and communion. Now, I want to hasten to say this. I also think there's some freedom here. And I think some churches could go beyond this if there were other official ways that they recognized members. They could could say you're no longer, let's say that only members could go to small groups. So they could say you're no longer Able to attend a small group because that would be a benefit, a, a way that that church recognizes associations. I think that would be biblical to say, here's another way perhaps that we want to create a distance so that you would hopefully return when you see the, 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 the problems with being outside the fellowship. I think these are the two baseline places to start. I'm probably comfortable starting and finishing here, I think this is the most clear way forward is removal of identification as a member and then refusal to allow them to partake in communion. I think that's very clear. But if someone were to go further, I don't think that'd be unbiblical. It's just probably gonna take some um, maneuvering and navigating to do that well. Because the point is, there's an officially created distance so that they would feel the weight of the lack of protection by the family of God and the protection of the body. This discipline of distance, it does not mean that we're unfriendly and impolite though. Are you hearing me? I'm looking for nods. I'm looking for people who just like, hey, we're tracking with you. In fact, think about this. And I want to make sure I'm I'm going to try to be logical and theological with you. We, We are supposed to try to win those who don't know Christ. I hope all of you have relationships with people who don't know Jesus. You're praying for them. You're interacting with them. You're building relationships because... You care for something far more important than where they live or who they vote for or how much money they make. You care about their soul and their eternal destiny. Amen, church? I mean, amen. Evangelism, man, it needs to be hot on our hearts all the time. So we want to do the best we can, even in our counterculture stature and posture, to have a winsome, loving approach. I think that's okay. You know, live as much as possible, live peaceably with all men. Be able to give a reason for the hope that's in you. I agree with every bit of that, okay? So if in church discipline, you're called to actually treat someone, and the Bible uses this phrase, you're to treat them like a Gentile, meaning someone who's not in God's family, then wouldn't it make sense, okay, if we're gonna put them in that category for a bit, if we're gonna create an official kind of distance from church benefits, that still means though I should love them like I'm trying to win them. So it's really you're, you're called on for a different kind of kindness and love. That's what's going on here. And for you to embrace the posture of 1 Corinthians 5, which is pretty counterculture, but pretty clear in my opinion, means this. You have to be willing to, to just face some misinterpretation, that you're going to be seen and heard like someone who suddenly you just ran off on your friendship. You just kind of threw them under the bus. You don't care. And that's not true. It's just that now you have to relate to them in a different kind of friendly, kind way. Does that make sense? That's what's going on here. And I want to verbally and clearly Make sure you hear the heart of your pastor, your pastors, and this church. We've had to do this maybe four, five times with grieving hearts. One of those did result in the person returning. We're so thankful for that. But there has been misinterpretation from that. And we did not, I'll just admit to you, I don't think we did it perfectly every time. I know we did it. We're human. We're flawed men who are trying our best to walk through this and and be biblically obedient and yet well, I know we didn't do it perfectly and sometimes you can get misinterpreted and you can get uh, you know incriminated so to speak but the heart of this church is not to remove friendliness it's not to remove politeness it's not to remove genuine kindness it's actually to to create an official distance so that the the beauty and privilege of belonging to the body is felt by the unrepentant member and then they would want to come back in repentance. And I hope that's just crystal Windex clear to you. Okay? I think that's the requirement. The requirement at a threshold is removal of identification, of identification as a member and the refusal for, for communion. And this is only for those within the church who have a mismatch between the label and their life. I'm hoping I have just utter clarity in this moment. Because this is like the key to the ignition. We don't want to drive this car, but when we have to, we want to put the keys in ignition and we want to drive it well. And so we have to have this rubric and this requirement that clearly kind of maps and navigates our steps. As I was working my way through this text, I asked myself, is there a place where this was done other than 1 Corinthians 5? Like, is there a place in the New Testament where we could see this play out maybe in another situation or location? And there are two that I want to show you. This really helped me personally. One's in 2 Thessalonians 3. Let me just read you what Paul says there, okay? To show you that it's really not uncommon to the New Testament church to hear this kind of language about the discipline of distance or not associating, creating some uh, gap, so to speak, and yet trying to be friendly. Look what Paul would say in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. He said this, we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother. And the words keep away in 2 Thessalonians 3 6 are the, it's the same word as 1 Corinthians 5, the word associate. Do not associate, keep away from, same word. He says, do not, he says, keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition you received from us. He's saying, if there's a lazy person among you, create a distance. Isn't that interesting? Which is why I think the list in 1 Corinthians 5 is a list of sample sins. Because he doesn't include laziness or idleness there, but here he says if they're idle, they're not willing to work, they're just gonna be a mooch. Create a distance, keep away. Don't associate with the lazy people. He goes on in verse 13, and says this. If they're busy bodies, if they're walking in idleness, he says, we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, earn their own living, And then he says, brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. Do not regard him, though, as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Do you see that? So Paul's saying, hey, there are some clear guidelines. If laziness and idleness and, can I use the word, moochiness is just part of their life, then deal with that sin. But hey, yes, warning, but he's not your enemy. He could be your brother or sister. He can be your brother. She can be your sister. We'll say that, okay? So I hope you're hearing Paul's heart in this too. The Bible's heart is not for an unfriendliness. It's not for a a complete isolation where there's no relationship. It's for an official type of breaking. And you're creating a a distance on purpose from the benefits of belonging to the body. So this would weigh on them. He also does this in Titus chapter 3. Listen to this verse, Titus 3. This is about divisive people, which again, I think is probably not mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5. It may be under the idea of reviler, but reviler means more like abusive. So I think this is more of a, of a divisive person. For, this is Titus 3.10. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him. Same word, by the way, is 1 Corinthians 5. It's the word Do not associate. And so he says here, I think he walked through the process of Matthew, doesn't he? He says, you warn them once, then you take a few more, you warn them twice. And if there's no repentance, and they just want to keep stirring up strife, just don't associate with them. It's this official kind of judicial separation. So isn't this very practical, how God's word just speaks into how we carry out, really, this counterculture command called church discipline? So all things considered, here's how I want to kind of summarize things, and I'll take a few questions. I think we'll have time. Here's how it summarizes summarize this last paragraph that gives us the nuts and bolts, kind of the practical nature of this thing called church, this one. I'd say this, that a counterculture church, it may cease to call an unrepentant member brother or sister. That may be the case. We don't want to go there. We don't enjoy that, but we can't be afraid to drive the car if we have to. Are you with me? So we may do that. However, we can still call them friend. You hearing that, church? Will you read that with me? This summary statement of this last paragraph? A counterculture church may cease to call an unrepentant member brother or sister, but it can still call them friend. Now, I didn't think of this statement totally on my own. I adapted it from some language I read in some of my research. And I was really moved by this story. In fact, this general language comes from some Baptist manuals that were written in the 20th century. And in these manuals of how to go through certain aspects of church official, um, we'll call it church polity. In one of the manuals, they talk about going through the process of church discipline And they said, if the unrepentant member doesn't respond, then when you bring it to the church and after you inform the church that you will no longer consider them a member and that there needs to be a disassociation with them in regards to communion and officialness, he says that the ceremony should end like this. And he used the word ceremony. It's kind of odd. But in the manuals, it says that the, the ceremony should end like this. The church should stand and they should say together this phrase. I'll just read you what the manual says. The church would stand and together they would say this We will cease to call him brother and we now call him friend. I was moved by that. You know why? Because it shows me the heart of a church that's embracing a responsibility but with a heaviness of heart, like a grieving spirit of sadness. That here's one who claims this label. We love them, and yet their life is in an ongoing, blatant, commonly known fashion, just one of, of a completely different nature. And so we have reached out in a long-suffering way over a long period of time to come back to Jesus, but there's been no response. So now, almost as this, this this last measure, we'll have to take this step, and it grieves us, but we're not afraid. And I, I love the heart of that. And so I just took that language and kind of adjusted it and kind of morphed it a bit to really express what I think is the real heartbeat of this last paragraph that there is an official way to go about this difficult action and it applies to a specific kind of people. So it's this rubric and this requirement. But even when that's in play, we'll call it, man, God needs us to love them. It's a different kind of love, it's a different kind of kindness but it is nonetheless love and kindness so that they would be drawn back to the family. So yes, we don't call them brother or sister, but we can surely still call them friend. I hope that moves you in the same fashion. Let's see if there's any questions that may have come in. Travis, will you join me for a few minutes? I've asked Travis to join me each week during this time because he does oversee all things discipleship, membership, and I just thought it was effective and appropriate to have him lean in from that angle as these questions came or even as some comments. So sure. this morning, no application necessarily from you, but let's okay. just answer a few questions. All right. uh, we have one, I think. Yes, okay. If the church or its members are not to judge outsiders, what is the appropriate way to call out sin in the culture? What does that look like, and how is it different from judging? Mm. You want a first shot or second shot? Second shot. Second sure. shot, Okay. <laughs> Here's my, uh, I should call the rest of the elders up here too, shouldn't <laughs> yeah, I? You yeah. guys want to join
1: us? Where are yeah. those guys? This hard. is
0: really not difficult. You'll, you know the answer to this. It's okay to call out sin in the culture, but we're not responsible then to enforce penalties for that. Right. I think that's kind of the gist. Okay, like we have a judge here in our church. He's in this service. He can call out sin internationally, but he's only responsible to provide a sentence for those within his district or perhaps in his uh, area of oversight. Does that make sense? But he could say such and such action in so and so country is wrong, but he's not authorized to deal with it. So what we're saying is, yes, let's, let's not be afraid to say what's right and wrong, but to actually hold a person who's not a part of our church, who's not even a Christian, right. to say, we're gonna disassociate with you. You can't be part of the community. And they'll say, well, I'm not part of it anyway. I don't want to be part of communion. They don't even believe in that. So it's this idea of carrying out the, and I hate to use the word penalty, but you you can help me here. You're much nicer than I am, kinder than I am. So just, you know, when you enforce something, you start with your church. But don't be afraid to call out sin in the culture, but you can't enforce penalties, so to speak. You can't enforce action on those who don't belong. I also would say this, and I'll let Travis speak. I think the best way to call out sin in the culture is to model submission to the authority that makes that a sin in the first place. I think it's so hypocritical of the church to speak to sins while they're happening within the church like crazy. So I think, like, I think sex is one of those issues in the 21st century where we can point a finger all day long, but if you look at sexual stats regarding pornography among church leaders, even church members, marriages, man, we got our own issues, Church. So long before I'd start pointing fingers, I'd say, can, can we get our house in order? Can we quit watching most of the things we stream on these devices and in these channels? Can we clean up our literature? Can we strengthen our marriages? Then you have some ground to stand on when you say to the culture, these are destructive, demoralizing, terrible sins. I mean, husbands should treat their wives better in the church. They should sacrifice, and I'm kind of going along. Does that make sense? We we don't need to point and then refuse to obey ourselves. Submit to the Lord's authority, and man, let's live out what we're saying should happen. I think that's the gist of Peter's comment. Let it begin in the house of God. Travis, comment on this, would you?
1: Yeah, I just agree with you. But yeah, we take, we take stances. We're, we have the freedom and we, we must take stances on sin issues and then we show it by living distinct or different. Mm. We're in membership class, membership class right now and one of my responsibilities is to explain to those becoming members our distinctives or, or, or the sins we will call out and how we will live. And so we do, we take stance. So we don't have to just be accepting of the culture, we have to verbally and, and by how we live show what sin is and, and that we won't participate in those. Does that makes sense? I grew up in the kind of the world of the Baptist distinctives, what, made, what makes us distinct. And for me, that was really helpful rather than kind of looking at the culture and trying to discern for myself how I should live. It was good for me to have a clear understanding of what is sin and what we're mm-hmm. not willing to cave on. And we
0: hold each other to those as That's far right. as enforcement will come. Well, I'm using some negative words. I apologize yeah. for that. I hope you hear my heart mm-hmm. and hear the whole four-week series. Good. Uh, let's see if we can take maybe one more. What about week? Oh, okay. Some of these sample sins are clear. Others maybe not. What does idolater, reviler, or swindler look like? Is there significance of the sample sins versus other sins subject to public church discipline? We'll just start with the first question. It's a lot there. I, I, the first one, uh, just by definition, idolatry in the text, it just means someone who also worships false gods. It probably in the text refers to those who are going to the temples of the false gods in Corinth, while at the same time trying to meet with the saints. So in our culture, maybe like someone who says, hey, you know, there's multiple ways to God. So you can go down to the mosque." And you can also go to the church. You can just do both. You can get to God any way you want. No, you you actually can't. There are certain distinctions we hold that we call that idolatry. Uh, Same thing with reviler would be the word for abusive. I see that more than just divisive, but someone who is physically um, destructive. And swindler would be someone who is extorting another person. The word there could also be translated extortion. Uh, I look at it like this: the one that says greedy, someone who the word "there's covetous" is also in the passage. So someone who never shares and never gives—that's scary. You think about, you know, God's call for the church to be generous and to give, both generously uh, corporately and individually. And yet He says here, you can discipline someone if they're just covetous and greedy. But here, so greed seems like this almost passive way that you're hoarding, whereas extor, uh, swindling or extortion seems to be that one that that you're actively now trying to deceive others. Mm -hmm. And you're going to say one thing, but you're going to get more from them in an active way. So let's just kind of some words that are used in the the definition. I hope you kind of see that and it plays out in our culture. The other ones aren't hard to understand. But those are things that if they're a consistent lifestyle, that's not uh, the label we're wearing. That's not the follower of Jesus. So... Mm -hmm. I'll take the last one and just kind of maybe address that another way. Travis, anything think you want to comment on this before we move to our final thing?
1: Uh, yeah, there are themes. Just to address that second piece, there are some themes, I think. As I was kind of thinking through this this week, most of them do point back to the Ten Commandments. And so these shouldn't be new to us, that God hates these. And then as I was studying this week, I bumped into Proverbs chapter 6, where it says there are six things that God hates seven that are an abomination to him, and you'll see a lot of common themes. Hmm. Even the second Thessalonians text you reference and Titus, th- there's a lot of similarities. You could draw some red lines between the, the words. And so he's just pointing out the character of God ever since the law was given to Moses and since he shared his heart with, with the nation of Israel. And so God's heart and hatred towards sin hasn't changed. And you'll see a lot of common themes.
0: That's good. Yeah. Well, stay you're with me, Travis. I know you're gonna lead hmm. us through communion in a moment. But I want to end this message today in our time in the same way we began this series four weeks ago. And that is in some prayer. Because we don't want to take this passage as a hammer. It's not a club. It's really an indictment. You know that, right? It's an indictment. Not only to the Corinthian church, but to churches in general who refuse to take sin seriously or to be God's distinctive people. So can we just spend a few moments praying that God would continue to make us a counter-culture people who embrace his distinctness but still love others? Can we do that? So I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads for a few moments. And would you just for a few moments would you pray this prayer just above a whisper all across the room. Before I read this prayer for you and ask you to pray it on your own behalf, remember, we're just asking God to give us ears to hear, hearts to submit, minds to understand, hands and feet to obey. So whether you're here in this auditorium, whether you're listening to our podcast, watching via our live streaming, Here's the prayer I want you to pray just above a whisper right now. Lord, bind us to yourself so that we cannot help but live out the counterculture nature of our calling. Lord, bind us to yourself so that we cannot help but live out the counterculture nature of our calling. And may the gospel always be our anchor and compass our foundation and plumb line. Tether us to the cross, Lord, and teach us to live like you and for you and to love like you. In the good name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.